Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, first of all, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm not Pastor Sippy. Um, he contacted me, I don't know, yesterday afternoon and didn't speak to me, texted me and said, I have laryngitis, I can't speak, can you fill in? And I said, sure I can. Uh, I was able to do that partly because I'd started writing a sermon series to be delivered at some point. And so today's message is not going to be the message he would have preached, because I didn't know what he was going to preach about. Uh, but it was a series I've been working on. Uh, and last week when I started the series, the message title was, God is God and I am not. Which is a good thing for all of us to do, to learn how to take that capital G off of our sweatshirt and get off the throne and let God do what God does best. Now today, as you can see, the message title uh, is perhaps a little bit more shocking at first glance. And so today the title is, He Doesn't Need Us, We Need Him. So with that being said, let's take a look at this passage from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It's a very penetrating scripture. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, even the casual reader, I think, should be struck with a rather universal emphasis of some words. I underline them for you. I don't know, did you catch them? Words like, no one. Not even one, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. I mean, do you you get the idea here? I I think it's kind of hard to miss the point of that scripture. What it's saying is that the entire human race, including those people who live in Springfield, have rebelled. As a result, God often looks down from heaven and he can't find a single person who truly seeks him. I mean, sin has so warped the human heart that no one does anything right in his sight. We are absolutely, positively, 100% worthless in his sight. That's a tough bottom line. Now, some of you might already be ahead of me thinking, well, how can you square this word worthless in God's sight? Because I grew up. And I learned that God so loved the world. I mean, why would anybody love a worthless person? Well, friends, the answer is pretty simple. God loves us in spite of our sin and not because of some supposed worth that he found in us. I mean, to put it in some rather crass terms, he found nothing worth saving in us, but he saved us anyway because that's what God does. And when you think about that, that is both humbling and it is terribly thrilling. I mean, think about it. None of us deserved God's grace. I mean, if we deserved it, guess what? It wouldn't even be grace at all. Any worth we have to God is worth that he gives us. We have value only because he values us, not because of anything in us. It, it certainly tells us that This kind of phony independence that we have or our casual arrogance we have when it comes to God and things of God and our sinful pride and that kind of obsessive need to be in control is of absolutely no value. 
We are not in control. And guess what? We were never in control. And this may surprise some of you. And you will never, ever be in control, even if you think you were, are, or would be someday. Now, I can prove that to you quite simply by looking at a number of Bible passages. They'll be up on the screen for you. Take a look at these. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But get this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Take a look at the second one. What a wretched man I am. Now, let me ask, what was the last time, Paul, you ever looked in the mirror in the morning and said, man, what a wretched man I am? Maybe this morning, he's saying no, but I've, I've known Paul for 30 years, so he's got a little wretched in him. I actually said this to myself this morning because I was preaching, I, and I tell you, I don't look near as good when I wake up as I do now. In fact, I won't look near this good by the end of the second service today. What a wretched man I am. And I, I thought about that. I stared and I looked at myself. And, and I repeated the second part of that. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? I mean, whether I like it or not, I'm slowly but surely dying. That's just a matter of life. Look at the next one. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. I suppose we could paraphrase that and put that in the KGV, which would be Kolb's general version of the Bible. The man who thinks he knows something doesn't know nothing. How about the next one? Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes where? From God. I can, I can summarize those passages this way by saying, you know, God is free to do whatever God wants to do. God is not obligated. He was not obligated to create us. He's not even obligated to save us. Everything God does is an act of sheer, sovereign, and I would call mind-boggling, amazing grace. Therefore, we are continually in his debt. At all times. And that thought, and maybe that thought alone, ought to encourage us to praise and worship him like never before. Now, what I shared with you are not just simply statements of theology. It's kind of meant to be a stepping stone. That's kind of where I was going in this message series by saying, you need to, first of all, get off the throne and admit that you're not God. And understand that God is God. And then you confess your utter and complete Need for God's help. And I would believe that unless you can say that from your heart, you have not yet reached first base in this journey of discipleship. I mean, there are many places in the Bible that you can look at that teach this truth. But my mind, uh, as I was preparing these messages, was drawn to Psalm 100. And Psalm 100 is going to be up on the screen. You take a look at it. These simple words have blessed the hearts for many people for nearly 3,000 years. The old 100, some people call it. And it only has two stanzas, and each of them is centered in God. We're just to give thanks and praise to God, if you read the first four verses, because He's God. There you go. Why should we give thanks to He's God. And if you read the second four verses, which you're going to take a look at, it tells us that He's also good. He's a good God. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. I mean, this acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, and I tell you, more and more as the days get closer to an election, I just say, oh man, God, thank you for being sovereign. 
Thank you that I know that the day after the election, you'll still be seated on the throne. You will still be the resident president in the hearts of man. But there's a statement of ownership then. There's a shout for joy. We serve with gladness. We sing for joy. In verse 3 it says, It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And then this leads us to what I would call a kind of a visible public thanksgiving and praise. Verse 4. You've heard this many times, I'm sure. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Let me give you a little history lesson real quick. The design of the tabernacle when they built that in the wilderness, the design of the temple that they built in Jerusalem allowed for huge courtyards. It kind of explains why we build our churches the way we do today, too. We have these big courtyards where people would gather together and they would sing and they would openly praise God with loud voices. It was almost as if God was saying, you want to meet me? Come on in, start singing, and I'll join you on the second verse. See, part of this emphasis was surely meant to be that Israel would publicly praise its God. As the pagan nations would stand outside those courts, if they stood outside in those courts of the Gentiles, they would hear this loud, joyful singing of these Israelites, and it would send a message out to them that, man, they must love their God. They must really know this God. I got to tell you, if people of this world celebrate a sports victory, like I did when my Cornhuskers beat Purdue yesterday, or if the Cubs would actually win a World Series, how much more should we openly celebrate our great God? I mean, friends, we ought to be praising our God on the street and in the park and in the classrooms and on the job and in the offices, everywhere you go. And while we don't need to be pushy, we don't need to be offensive, we should not be silent either. One thing I've been blessed with, I've traveled all over the world to preach and teach, and I've got to tell you, I know something about worship that's different. And it's this, we do not worship like they do in Haiti. We do not worship like they do in Africa. We do not worship like they do in India, where the entire congregation, you'll find them uh, singing and chanting and laughing and lifting up the name of the Lord as they're actually walking to their church services. I had the wonderful opportunity to preach at a Zulu church in South Africa, and the only time they didn't dance during the entire service was when I spoke. And I think a lot of which I'd just be quiet so they could dance again. They even danced their offering forward. I I demonstrated, but I, it's just way too funny. Now, the the problem with us is that uh, we are often way too reserved. And by reserved, I mean Lutheran uh, for that. (laughs) But I think there is, there's a lot of room for us to improve in how we express our praise and worship to this wonderful God who took a bunch of worthless people and saved them anyway. Now, the psalm ends with these reassuring words in verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Now, think about that for a moment. Because God's mercy endures forever. It has no beginning. It has no end. That's because before time, he was still the eternal father of all mercies. 
God's mercy never runs out. It's never exhausted. And when you feel you've used up your entire allotment of mercy, guess what? You're going to find there's still this infinite river of mercy flowing from the very throne of God. I mean, God's mercy is not like the weather that changes seasonally or in some places hour by hour. It does not depend on you. It does not depend on anything you do. See, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. And there is nothing you can do that would cause him to love you any less than he does right now. His mercy is so great, his love is so free, that it is truly infinite, it is truly everlasting. See, no changes, no changes, however great, can ever produce any changes in God. I mean, that's why he said, I'm the Lord, I change not. I mean, how many of you have changed your mind already this morning? Probably all of you. I mean, all things are moving according to God's plan. I mean, there are no mistakes with God. Now, you might sometimes think otherwise, but it's not true because you could be walking around and say, oh, man, everything is against me. But I get news for you. My Bible says God is always for me. And if God is always for me, guess what? Nothing can be against me. God is always ordering out the best for us. There's an interesting Bible passage in the Old Testament, Acts 20, verse 6. It says that God shows his love to a thousand generations for those who love him. Now think about that. The biblical generation is 40 years. That means God's love will last 40,000 years. And since that promise was given to Moses at Mount Sinai about 3,500 years ago, we could safely conclude that God's faithful love will continue at least another 36,500 years from today. I mean, that's to say that in these last 3,500 years from the time of Moses till today, we have not even yet reached 10% of the way through the length of God's love. But now some of you are saying, are we supposed to take that literal? Are we really supposed to take that literal? Well, no, it's not really literal, but it's also not purely figurative either. It's a way of showing us that God's love, it's a way of showing us that God's faithfulness goes far beyond anything we could ever understand. I mean, generations come and generations go. I mean, some of you have probably taken pictures of four generations. You thought, whoa, way cool. And just imagine the generations that have happened already, that that will still happen. And the only thing that remains constant through all generation after generation after generation is God. Now, I'm kind of wrapping up this message. I just want to give you three simple little statements. Here's statement number one. God owns everything, and we owe own nothing. It's Stewardship Sunday at the church I normally attend in Branson. It's the Sunday we fleece the sheep. Um, but, you know, a lot of churches have Stewardship Sunday. And sometimes I've heard pastors stand at great length to say, we need to give him back some of what we got. And every time I hear that, I just cringe. I want to stand up and shout and say, you ain't got nothing. You are not giving God back something of yours. You're only returning to him Something that he's already loaned to you. That hymn we sang today, which has next to nothing to do with my sermon, but I did listen to it and I did sing it, talked about the font and the altar. 
I've thought about this when I've baptized babies over the years, and even adults, but babies in particular. And I've often said to couples, when you came in this morning, you thought this baby was yours. Really, it wasn't. But now it's God's child. I mean, it's always been God's child. And now I'm going to give you back God's child to raise on his behalf. Even your children and not your own. Those four sitting right there, those are God's kids that he's loaned you. And he says, take care of them. See, our problem is we often don't feel our need until things aren't going very well. But we need God just as much as if we had a million dollars or if we were flat broke. We need God just as much if we were in perfect health or whether we were suffering from cancer. We need him desperately. And we need God more than we often know or recognize. Here's the second thing. Our lives are broken. Our lives are broken because of sin. Sin has messed up everything. You don't need to look very far. I mean, the whole world, the book of Romans says, groans with sin. I mean, nothing works right. Things break. Little children get shot on street corners. Marriages disintegrate. Promises are broken. The unborn are aborted. The laws are violated. Terrorists fly. Airplanes in the buildings. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, the world is broken and we are broken. Like Humpty Dumpty, guess what, folks? We cannot put everything back together again. That's why I come to statement number three. If God doesn't help, if God does not intervene into this mess that we have caused by our sin, then we are sunk. That should make, that should be pretty obvious by now. I mean, David says something very wonderful in Psalm 34, verse 6. He said, the, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. You know, if you take that verse backwards, you come to a wonderful truth. If you want to be saved, guess what? The Lord needs to hear you. But for you to be heard, what do you need to do? You need to call on the Lord. But only who calls on the Lord? Only a poor man calls on the Lord. Those who think themselves self-sufficient have no need for the Lord. And so they never, ever call on him. Only the poor man calls, and only he is heard, and only he is saved, and only he is delivered. I kind of wonder whether Jesus wasn't thinking about this when he did the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those people who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, who confess their meekness. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted, and one day they will inherit the earth. Just think, friends, blessed are the needy. Any needy people in here this morning? We are all at great need. Blessed are the desperate. Man, I'm desperate for the love of God. I just can't get enough of God. Blessed are the broken. Any broken people here today? You know what? We're all broken in some way. You know, we don't need to be raging alcoholics or sex addicts or pornography followers to be considered broken. We would be broken because we just plain simple are sinful. Blessed are the weak. And are we not all weak? Are you weak and weary and heavy laden? You ever sung that song? Cumbered with a load of care. I don't know what cumbered means, but you ever been cumbered? 
Yes, you need to be unencumbered. It says all of those kind of people, the needy, the desperate, the broken, the weak, they all find the Lord. Everyone else will be turned away. It says, but to the needy, God says, come in. I've got a place reserved for you. You know, if you ever travel to the Holy Land, uh, you will probably visit the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And the church is built over that uh, supposed spot where uh, Mary gave birth to the baby Jesus. Now, to get to that church, you walk across the big courtyard, big spread out courtyard. But in order to get into the church, you have to go through a very small doorway. You have to duck, literally, to get inside that church. Now, the entrance was deliberately built that way because for many centuries, the wealthy people used to ride their horses to church and literally would ride their horses into church. Now, the priests thought that that was not the right thing to do, so they lowered the entrance to force the high and mighty to dismount before entering the church. Guess what? The same is true of salvation. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to get off your high horse. Until you do, you will never be saved. I mean, since you don't deserve heaven, the only proper response to God's wonderful offer of salvation is to say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus did for me. See, gratitude and not arrogance is the language of heaven. Jesus is all you need. That ought to drive us off of our high horse and onto our knees. And when we finally get off of that horse and we finally find ourselves on our knees and we cry out to God, then and only then will our prayers be heard and answered. But you'll never know if you never see for yourself. I mean, I could stand up here and preach all day, and I'm not, by the way, and it wouldn't have any effect until you admit that you are not God and you need him far more than he will ever need you. I mean, some of us have to absolutely hit rock bottom. And there may be people here today, that's the reason you're here, is because you hit rock bottom. Many of you know I've been teaching at Angola Prison, the largest maximum security prison for nearly 16 years. I can recount story after story after men who prison was their rock bottom. They had to be drug out of New Orleans or Baton Rouge or places like that inside an 18,000-acre working farm to be brought to their knees and discovered that they'd been running away from God, but God still found them, even in a prison. Because God is kind of like that hound of heaven, always searching for people. When we do that, when we like the prodigal son who's on his knees, and it says, the Bible says, when he came to his senses, that's when we cry out to our God in desperation. You're going to see something up here on the screen. It's something I've heard. You've heard this before. It goes this way. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then you will know that Jesus is all you need. Friends, I don't know your condition today. I barely know my own. I had to get up so early to come here today. But I'm happy I was able to. But if you are weary, if you are tired, if you are discouraged, if you need a fresh start, if you feel as if your life is going nowhere, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to know God, then drop what you're doing, get off your high horse, and run to the cross. 
Don't delay. Don't make any excuses. Lay hold of the Son of God who loves you and died for your sins. Lay all your sins on Him. Trust Him and trust Him alone as your Savior. My prayer for all of us today is that our Lord would give us faith to believe and wings to fly to the cross of Jesus and then strength to lay hold and hold on to Him tightly. He is a wonderful Savior to those who trust Him. And always remember, friends, God is God. We are not. God doesn't need us, but we desperately need Him. God's peace. Amen. We worship the Lord at this time with our tithes and our offerings.